0: In this series, we are looking at the seven final statements that Jesus made while on the cross. He was there. We talked about this recently, that he was there for six hours. You'll hear me mention that a couple of times this morning, from 9 a.m. until 3 o'clock for six hours. His fifth statement, I am thirsty. We're going to talk about that. We need to talk about it. It sounds so simplistic, and really the statement in and of itself is simple. In fact, of all of the statements that Jesus made of these seven, really, you know, only this one would be one that we have made. All the other statements. Statement number one, you remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, only Jesus could make that statement. The second statement that we looked at is when Jesus said to that second criminal being uh, crucified right next to him, he said, I assure you, I assure you today, you are going to be with me in paradise. I give you that assurance. You know, this... uh, this criminal uh, didn't have a chance to go through discipleship. Was never, you know, baptized. Although discipleship and baptism, all of those things are important. But in the waning moments of his life, he cries out to Jesus, and Jesus said, "I hear what you're saying today. You're going to be with me in paradise." The third statement was the statement when Jesus looked out, and there was not very many people at all that were with him. His mom, three to five of her friends, Mary Magdalene. We talked about that recently. His best friend, the Apostle John, and he looks at his mother, Mary and he says to Mary, here is your son, pointing to John, and he says to to John, he says, and here is your mother. John, take care of my mom. And then last week, the fourth statement was that, that reality when Jesus, the whole weight, this was a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this fourth statement, the weight of the whole world, all the sin of the whole world was placed upon him. We looked at that verse in the Bible that says that God is so holy that God is not able to even look on evil. And in that moment, when the weight of the whole world, the sin of the whole world was placed upon Jesus, that God had to turn his head. He could not look upon even the life of his son because he could not look at all that had been placed upon Jesus. Jesus, feeling that, cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Now, only Jesus could have made any of those statements, but the state this fifth of seven statements that Jesus made are actually a statement that we can make. And we've made it many, many times before. You've said that. You've probably said it some point recently. You'll certainly say it during the summer months. I am thirsty. But the way that Jesus said, I am thirsty, has profound implications. And we're going to look at that today. I am thirsty. You've said that. Jesus said it. But we're going to see that the way that he used it is uh, quite quite meaningful. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this talk in, in the next several moments. I am thirsty. I was thinking about it while working on this talk. Uh, most of you know that I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I had grandparents, my paternal grandparents that lived in South Georgia, and we visited them quite often. I can remember so many times being with my other cousins outside, out in the front yard typically, because they had what seemed to be at the time a pretty big front yard, and we would be out there in that summer South Georgia heat, and we would be running and playing hour after hour, sweating, and we'd reach that point where we would be like, hey, I'm... I'm thirsty, and I can remember my cousins. However, many of us there were uh, getting together, let's, let's go get something to drink, and we would walk from the front yard up into the carport area to the back door, and so many times just sort of open the door and say, Grandma, we're, we're thirsty. Give us some. We're thirsty. Can we get something to drink? Now, my grandmother, this, this was her, her way. Uh, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents were, were, you know, to say that they were frugal would be an understatement. And I can remember we'd say, you know, I am thirsty, and she wouldn't bring like a big gulp for each of us. First of all, she would bring this drink, and this is going to date me and many of you. How many of you remember this soft drink called Tab? Anybody remember Tab? Is it just me, or does anybody remember Tab tasting a little bit like goat spit? I'm I'm not, I I don't know what goat spit tastes like, but it's got to be somewhat like Tab. And I can remember that grandma would bring that bottle, you know, of tab out to the door and however many of us, I'm not making this up, however many of us there were, she would hand us, not not a 16 ounce, not an 18, not a 24, not a big gulp, a frugal grandma would hand us each, I'm not kidding, a Dixie cup, like a mouthwash cup and we'd just be standing there and like fill her up, you know, it's going to take you. And I can remember looking at that and thinking I was a lot more thirsty than that and wondering if, you know, by the time I get it to my lips, it's so little, is it going to evaporate somewhere between here and and there? But I am thirsty. And Jesus said, I am thirsty. But what did he mean by it? And a lot of times we fail to consider... All that Jesus meant, and we're going to look at that this morning. To all of our friends that are back with us from Easter last week, it was very crowded. I mentioned a book that I wanted to give out to our new friends, especially those who had prayed to receive Christ. Although it's for anybody really that you're new to our church. If if it was too crowded, you were not able to get to the information table last week, I I want you to have a copy. Just go by there, let them know you want a copy of this. It's a little booklet. Won't take you long to read. What on earth am I here for? It's a great little booklet. I hope you'll pick it up on your way out. But let's go to John 19. We're going to look at this fifth statement, fifth of seven statements that Jesus made. Look at it with me. This is John 19. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. We're going to come back to that. And it's very meaningful. That is weighty. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and To fulfill scripture, we need to talk about that. And to fulfill scripture, he said, read these three words with me. Jesus said, I am thirsty. What did they do? A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. We need to talk about this. And I want to touch on something briefly before we unpack what is going on here. Now, in Mark 15, Mark 15, 23... We're told in that account that what happens, Mark 15, 23, is actually dealing with the initial moments, the first moments when Jesus is either just about to be crucified or he has just been crucified. At that point in time, his executioners, these Roman soldiers, offered to him something to drink. But when they offered it to Jesus, it's not this time that we're looking at here uh, that we just saw, these two verses. It's an earlier time. And they offered Jesus something to drink, and Jesus flatly refused. What was it they offered him to drink was this, and then I'll tell you why he refused it. What they offered to Jesus in that moment, again, this is the early stages of the crucifixion, near the beginning, not the sixth hour, not when this happened, right toward the end. But in the beginning, they offered to Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. Now, why, why does that really matter, wine mixed with myrrh? And why would Jesus refuse that? Now, I read this not too terribly long ago, and I did not realize this until I'd read it. And that is that with myrrh, among many other uses that it would have, one of the ways that myrrh was used was in the form of a painkiller. So what they were actually doing is offering to Jesus wine somehow mixed with this painkiller. Now, you need to understand that when they did this, that all of a sudden... Uh, these Roman executioners were not being compassionate, not caring. Uh, They were not just all of a sudden feeling sorry for Jesus because of everything that they went through. These guys were experienced guys. They had been to crucifixions many times before. I've shared with you Jesus was not the first person to be crucified, nor would he be the last. And they had a lot of experience with crucifixions and they knew what would happen. They knew that it was so agonizing, so excruciating that many times whoever was being crucified would just scream out and cry out because of the enormity of the pain. And they would do this hour after hour after hour until they died. Many times when somebody was crucified because they had not been flogged, they had not been scourged as Jesus had. Remember I shared with you recently that the beating that Jesus took was such that many times people would not survive that even to get to the cross. He survived that and then spent six hours on the cross. But a lot of times people who are crucified never went through that kind of beating. They certainly did not go through all the mockery and everything that Jesus had gone through. And so for a lot of people, they would last hours and hours, sometimes into the night and into the next morning. And the entire time they would be screaming and crying out in pain. And so what these uh, uh, executioners would do, not being sympathetic, but just, you know, brassly stated to just shut him up, they would give them this mixture to just sort of sedate them. And Jesus wanted to be fully coherent. Jesus did not... uh, Want to be sort of mentally incapacitated. He did not want to be checked out. He wanted to be fully conscious and fully alert. He is aware of what he is about to suffer. He knows that this is going to be excessive. He knows that this is going to be excruciating. He is completely clear on the reality that the sin of the whole world is about to be placed upon him. And when it does, he is going to feel the entirety of that weight. And he has no intention of being delirious when that happens. So that's, that's why initially, again, going back to Mark fifteen twenty three, when they offer him something to drink, he refuses. He is not going to be anesthetized. He is, he is not going to be delirious. He's going to be fully coherent of everything that is happening there on the cross. Now, there were a couple of phrases I drew your attention to just a moment ago. You saw it earlier on the screen, these two phrases, his mission was now finished, and then it said, and to fulfill scripture. Now, what does that mean? Why does that really matter? His mission was now finished. It is now completed. Jesus is the embodiment of the fulfillment of the Scripture in regards as to what had just happened. What has just happened? God's justice has now been satisfied in Jesus. I think we all know by now, if you've been around here any length of time at all, Jesus should have never been crucified. He was a sinless man. He never committed, not even, not even microscopic sin. No sin, no crime, no, nothing to be shameful about or guilty about. Why was Jesus crucified? The reality is he was crucified in our place. We should have been crucified we should have been punished. Jesus assumed all of that upon himself. So now, in Jesus taking the sin of the whole world upon himself, and now moments away from death, there's the realization that God's justice has been satisfied the reality that the scripture had indeed been fulfilled, that the plan of salvation is now complete, that the payment for all sins before and since has now been accomplished. And so in these waning moments of his life, whereas earlier he had refused this mixture of wine and myrrh, this painkiller, now he says, I'm thirsty. I want you for the next few moments to stay completely engage with me. I'm going to walk you through three transitions. With each of these three transitions, I'm going to give you two things to think about, but I'm going to need you to hang in here with me, so don't check out. How many of you feel that you got an adequate amount of sleep last night? Could I just see your hand? An ad- you feel like you got enough rest. All right, that's numerous ones. I am slightly concerned about those of you who are not lifting your hands. I fear that you may try to catch up On your lack of rest in the next 20 minutes. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to stay hanging in here with me because what I'm going to talk about is very, very important. And most of you have never seen this before, but I want you to see it today. Three transitions, two things I want to point out of each of the three. Number one, what's important to know about the thirst of Jesus? What is important to know about the thirst of Jesus? Why does that matter? Why is he thirsty? And here's the thing that I want to mention. Number one, why Jesus is thirsty, it is a it is a picture of Jesus in his humanity. He's in his humanity. It does not, and I'll touch on this. It does not mean that he has given up his deity. That he is uh, no longer God's son. He is fully God, but he is fully human, and that does not mean 50% God, 50% human. He is fully human, and his humanness bleeds through here when he says, I'm thirsty. Now, what does that matter? Because prior to Jesus coming into this world, it's referred to as his incarnational life in his human form. Prior to that time, Jesus has never known thirst. He has not. He never have a new thirst. He never knew hunger. He never knew fatigue. He never uh, needed any of any of these things. And now for the first time ever Jesus has assumed upon himself this humanity and it's out of this that he cries out, I am thirsty. Think about what he's been through. Since his arrest, Jesus has gone. Remember it happened? He, he goes without sleep all night long. He not only goes without sleep, he goes without any food whatsoever. He goes without having any water to drink. He's been brutally beaten. He's now been on the cross for almost six hours. And he finally cries out, I am thirsty. It is his humanity. The incarnation life of Jesus is becoming visible. I'm thirsty. I really would like to have something to drink. But I want you to understand that in saying that, that Jesus is in his incarnational state in his human form does not mean that he's given up who he is. He is still divine. He is still the Son of God. Now, how do we know that? In just doing what Jesus is doing, maybe you've never thought about this before, but just in experiencing what Jesus is experiencing right now on the cross, it is actually the fulfillment of one of, think about this now, of one of over 380 predictions that has been made concerning Jesus over hundreds of years, over 380 of them, that people would point to back in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet they would point to the Messiah when Jesus had not even been born into this world yet. And this is yet another fulfillment of them. There were all these predictions, predictions like that Jesus would be born, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, are you kidding me? This small, little, insignificant town, Bethlehem, but the Messiah would be born there. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. That was one of these pr- predictions or what is actually called a prophecy. There was another one that he would be raised in Nazareth. Where was Jesus raised? In Nazareth. It was said that he was do these miracles. What did Jesus do? He performed these miracles. It was stated in these prophecies and predictions that Jesus would reach point. Where he would be betrayed, where he would be arrested, where he would be crucified, that he would be resurrected from the dead. And Jesus embodies this. He is the fulfillment of over 380 of these prophecies. And when he said, Think about this, even when Jesus said, I am thirsty, it is a fulfillment of prophecy. And you say, Well, Jeff, how do you know that? Well, let me take you back. It's not on the screen but hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever crucified. This is out of Psalm 69. I'll just read it to you. This is David. And David, pointing to the future Messiah, said this, when I was thirsty, they offered me vinegar. When I was thirsty, they, which is describing in another way, a form of what Jesus was being offered. So what is it Why is it important to know about the thirst of Jesus? It's important for us to know that He was both human and He was still deity. He was still divine. He was God's Son. Secondly, under this first thought, it reveals to us how much we are loved. How much are you loved? You're loved enough that Jesus spent six hours on the cross for you. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants... You want to be loved. I want to be loved. Every rational thinking person that I know wants to be loved. I don't know any truth-telling person that just says, you know what, I want to be hated. I want to be hated by everybody. I hope everybody hates me. Well, that, you know, somebody says that there's something not quite, their synapses are not, you know, quite firing the way that they're supposed to. Nobody would say that, you know, in truth, everybody wants to be loved. How much are you loved? You're loved enough that Jesus would go to the cross for you. Look at this verse on the screen, Romans 5 eight. Look at this verse. But God has shown how much he loves us. How much did he love us? It is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us, that Jesus went through this crucifixion that we've been talking about. That's how much we're loved. Everybody wants to be loved, but only love would cause Jesus to die on the cross. He could have ended the bleeding. You think about it. He could have ended the bleeding and the suffering at any moment. When you're Jesus, you can do anything. If you can raise people back to life, as Jesus did on several occasions, Jesus could have come off of the cross five minutes into it. How many of you know that? Jesus could have come off the cross five minutes. In fact, Jesus, before he was ever crucified, before he was ever flawed and beaten, Jesus could have called fire down from heaven upon every one of them. But Jesus knew that that would circumvent what he intended to do, which is to fulfill scripture, and to accomplish the mission he was sent on earth to do, to die for the sins of every human being, including you and me. A number of years ago, it's quite an old book by now, Max Lucado, if you've not read the book, again, it's been around for many, many years, but he wrote a book called He Chose the Nails. And in it, this is what he said. He said, when asked to describe the width of his love, Jesus stretched one hand to the right and the other to the left and had them nailed in that position so you could know he died loving you. But then he adds in the next paragraph, but isn't there a limit to that? Surely there has to be an end to this love. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But then he adds, but David the adulterer never found it. Paul the murderer never found it. Peter the liar never found it. When it came to life, they hit bought but when it came to God's love, they never did. And then he adds, they like you found their names on God's list of love. How much did God love us? That much. Jesus put one hand to the right and one to the left. Now, if you're new, you're not going to know this, but if you've been around here any length of time at all, you might just know that uh, we have two little granddaughters. Would you know that? Is that, is that a surprise to anybody? And um, I never had a problem with us going over, you know, using too much data until, you know, the little granddaughters moved. You know, and I, I i didn't feel that was God's will. I felt they should stay with their grandparents, but their parents had other plans. And so since that time, I've become a huge fan of Facebook. And so actually this morning, early before the first service, I knew the girls would be up by then. So uh, after I'd read over my notes several times, I i FaceTimed my son. And I asked a question, and I hope, and it was so, that Kenley and Landry, they were both already up and running around there an hour behind us. And so I've talked to them for a while, and I love it the fact that Landry now says pawpaw, 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 pa And I love to hear her say that. Kenley, who's three. And I started this, and I'll do this eventually with Landry when she gets big enough to respond. But when uh, Kenley was very, very small, I'd say to her, Kenley, how much does your pawpaw, and I sort of trained her to do this, how much does your pawpaw love you? And I did it this morning while I was talking to her. Daddy was holding her. I said, "Kinley, how much does Papa love you?" And she did it like she's done hundreds of times. This much, this much. Now every now and then she wants to aggravate me, and I'll say, "Kinley, how much does your Papa love you?" And she'll say, "This much." And I say, "No," and she'll grin. This much. Papa loves Kinley. This much. Jesus loves you. This much. I didn't take nails in my hand, but Jesus did. And he did it for you. Why? Because that's how much he loves you. When Jesus said, I am thirsty, it was indicative of his humanity and never known thirst, hunger, fatigue, any of these things before. But now he knows pain. He knows thirst. And he says, I'm thirsty. And he stayed there because he loved us. Now, there's something else that you need to see not just why is it important, what is important to know about the thirst of Jesus. Secondly, and I'm going to give you two things here, but I want you to be sure you get this. Secondly, what do we need to know about the thirst of others? What do we need to know about the thirst of other people? And I want to give you a couple of thoughts here, and it's not going to take me very long. And that is, and I'll just give it to you, and then we're going to talk through it a little bit. What do we need to know about the thirst of others? We need to understand this. When we serve others, People who are thirsty, people who are need, when we serve others, we are serving Jesus. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow we could, out of worship and gratitude, have the opportunity to serve Jesus based on everything that Jesus has done for us? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, that's, that's not going to happen here on Earth. It's literally impossible. Hopefully, we'll be given that privilege when we get to heaven, but on earth, it's not going to happen. So how do we serve Jesus? How do we love Jesus here on, here on earth? We do it by serving and loving people here. Now, did I just make that out? Was that a, a premonition, a thought? Did I dream about this last night, think that it's revelation somehow? None of the above. It all comes right out of the Bible. I want you to look at Matthew 25. It says this, and it's this idea of people. It's like this picture of people standing before God, Christians, righteous, Christ followers at the end of time, and they look, and they say, then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? We never saw you hungry and feed you, or what's this word here? thirsty. When did we ever see you, Jesus, thirsty and give you something to drink or stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, King Jesus will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of these least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Jesus said, you didn't know you were serving me, but when you responded to their need, to those who were hungry, thirsty, those who were naked, those who were afraid, those who, when you did it as unto them, you were actually serving me. You were serving me. And anytime that we serve other people, we're serving Jesus. Now, uh, all of us have done something like this at some point in time. We've seen a need. We've seen somebody in need, thirsty. And this is what we've said. We said something like this. God, don't you see what is happening here? God, don't you see this need? Don't you see what they, what they have need of? And, you know, God, you need to do something about it. And God said, I am doing something about it. I'm setting it before your eyes, and I'm putting that burden on your heart so that you can do something about it. How many of you know it's easy to point out, you know, up to God and say, God, look at this, and God, you do something about it. And God says, okay, I've got a plan. I'm glad you brought that up, and I've got a plan. You do something about it. You serve them. That's why I put you there. See you and I are here on Earth to do more than just accumulate money and to live in a house or to work a particular job or to wear the clothes we wear or whatever eat the food we. There's a much higher purpose of our lives in this world. You know, how many of you would agree that heaven is going to be an incredible, incredible, perfect place? How many of you would agree? How many of you would agree that it's going to be much better than what we've got going on right here? Then why would God leave us here if that's a much better place? Because there's people that we need to serve. There's people that we need to love. There's people that we need to care for, and we say, God, don't you see this? Do something about it. God said, I am. You do something about it. You meet this need. Bill Hybels wrote this. It's a profound statement in itself. Look at this statement on the screen. He said, I would never want to reach out someday with a soft, uncalloused hand, a hand never dirty by serving, and shake the nail-pierced hand of Jesus. I want to be sure that when I shake his hand that I've done something in his name. What do we need to know about the thirst of others? When we serve others, we're serving Jesus. Let me give you a second thought under this second transition, and that is God will notice our smallest acts of service. God will notice our smallest acts of service. You know, a lot of times, and I know that this dances around in the minds of people, they think, you know what, if I'm ever going to do anything of notoriety, if I'm ever going to do anything that's going to gain the attention of God, it's going to have to be big. It's going to have to be dramatic. It's going to have to be public. It's going to have to be global. It has got to be this major, major thing in order to gain the attention of God. But that is not so. It's not true. God remembers even the smallest things. See, the evil one can play with your mind, and you can say, well, you know what? I can never do anything to really be of service to God. And and, and you may even think, well, you know what? You've got to do something public so big. You may say, well, you know what? If I was Pastor Randy and had that voice, how many of you would like to have that voice? I, I do in my imagination but I don't have it in reality. And you say, well, you know, if I could sing like Pastor Randy, then, uh, you know, or some of these praise singers, then the reality is, then, you know, God would reward that because he's leading a lot of people every single week in worship. Or, you know, Pastor Jeff, if I could just stand up and, and you know, work on messages and, and write messages and give talks right out of the Bible, then that's, that's, you know, I'd get rewarded for that. But you know what? When I read the Bible, you know, what I see is not all the rewards that are given. When I, the scripture that jumps out at me is this one. Let not many of you desire to be teachers because as of such, you will incur more stricter judgment. So when I read, it's not like all the rewards. It's like the increased judgment I'll get on the basis of what I do. So you may think, well, I've got to do something public. I've got to do something massive, big, global in order to be noticed by God. But I want you to notice what this verse says, because I want you to see reality and how God wants to use every single one of you. Look at this verse, Matthew ten forty two, And if you give, look at this, how small this is, even a cup of cold water, even a cup of cold water, if you work in a cafe, you may say, if you give even a cup of warm coffee to the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. God remembers and rewards even small things. What are you going to do with your life that's going to be remembered and rewarded? Let me say that again. What are you going to do with your life that is going to be remembered and rewarded? A lot of you may not understand this, but. Every single week while we're in this theater, you may not know that our church is actually in three other theaters on the other side of the lobby and two party rooms that are completely converted into just incredible nurseries. And we have incredible teams. And you may not realize that while we're in here every single week, I'm on these fantastic workers uh, in safe environments, great toys, great, great uh, materials. We have 100-plus kids and students every single week on the other side of the lobby. And you know what I think about? I think about every one of them who is holding a baby, who is rocking a baby, who is loving a baby, who is teaching a lesson. Every one of them who is leading a little game time so that a child can learn a little bit more about Jesus, that, that, listen, friends, that's going to be remembered, and that is going to be rewarded. I think about these praise singers, what they do, the musicians, what they do, that's going to be remembered, that's going to be rewarded. But these tech guys who nobody ever gets to see, they're never in the lights, that they're here early, and they're running wires, and there's wires all over this place, and lights, and sound, and uh, that they're going to be remembered and rewarded. I think about people who are standing outside holding a bulletin, and they may feel like they're not doing anything that really matters, that they're all, they may feel like all I'm doing is smiling and handing out a bulletin, or I'm in the cafe, and all I'm doing is I'm giving a donut or a cup of coffee or some juice or some milk, or I'm in the information center. I'm handing out something. I'm asking a, a question or working as an usher. All I'm doing is passing a bucket, or I'm working in this area. I'm leading a small group and saying, that's not that big. That's not that major. But I'm telling you, friends, that is going to be remembered, and it's going to be rewarded by God what are you going to do that's going to be remembered and rewarded by God? I've got a friend, a lot of you would know him. And uh, I, you know, I hesitate to mention to identify like one people, one person in isolation, because I can think of even while I mentioned this guy, there's numerous others that I could highlight, but I've never mentioned this guy publicly. But let me tell you what he does every single week. See, a lot of people think, well, you know what? Um, if I weren't so busy, I'd do something for God, but I'm, I'm really busy. You know, underline that is, I'm really important too. (laughs) So how can I really? And this guy, my friend, he's been with us ever since the beginning. He's uh, by vocation, he's an eye doctor. He's an eye doctor. He also has his hand in a family business that requires a lot of time and energy and effort and thinking in that regard. So this is a very, very busy guy. His name is Stuart. And Stuart, let me tell you about him. I'll just take a moment. Stuart shows up, In fact, I get here at 7 o'clock. A lot of our team gets here at 7 o'clock. A lot of people setting up at 7 o'clock. I get here most every Sunday. When I get here at 7 o'clock, Stuart is already here waiting to get busy. You know what Stuart does? He's an eye doctor. And he goes down to the kids' areas, and he sets up nursery stuff. He's dealing with toys and little gates for safety and little setting up tables. And this, this guy, he's here at 7 o'clock. And then I've seen this because I've noticed that when he and those who work with him, which are several people that are in here that are doing setup, that when Stuart gets through and he knows that everything in these kids' areas are fine. I mean, he's an organizer. He's a planner. He's working with Ashley and Anissa and our staff. And he looks at it. And then he walks around And I've seen him just start walking around looking for other things to do. And he'll keep doing that until before 930 when he starts serving as an usher and he'll be here for the service and he shows up. And I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you ought to do this. I'm not saying that these things are only rewarded by God and remembered by God. But I think about this guy who's very, very busy in his practice, in his business, in his life, in his family. But every single Sunday he's here at seven o'clock and he doesn't leave till 11 o'clock. And you'll never convince me that that will not be rewarded by God. How many of you think that it will? How I many of you think we'll applaud people who do like that in Jesus' name? But you don't have to do what Stuart does. Even a cup of cold water. Even a cup of cold water. Serve. Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to remember that. Whatever you do for me, I'm going to remember and I'm going to reward. I love this statement. Look at it with me. It is when we forget ourselves that we do things that are remembered. What's important to know about the thirst of Jesus? It shows that He is fully human, but He's fully God, and that He did it. He stayed on the cross because of love. What do we need to know about the thirst of others? That even when we do small things, when we serve other people, we're actually serving Jesus, and even the smallest things that we think are insignificant does not matter. Well, they matter to God, and God's going to remember them, and God's going to reward them at the end of time. Lastly, what do we need to know about our own thirst? And I'll give you two things and we're done. And it'll only take me a moment. We need to think about, first of all, what are we really thirsty for? What are we really thirsty for? We need to consider that when we consider our own thirst. You see, a lot of what you think is going to meet your needs and make you happy will not actually achieve that. If you just think, if this happens in my life, then I'm going to be happy. I'm not a happy person, but if, if this could happen, then, you know, I'm going to be happy. If that's what you think, I hate to tell you this, but I need to tell you the truth, you're going to be chronically disappointed. Examples would be, you know what? I, I'm, not, I'm not really happy. I'm not a happy person, but if I could just get a better job, then I'm going to become a happy person. Now, listen, I am not saying that if you have a job that stinks and you get a job that does not stink, that you're not going to look at that job and say that is a better job. What I am saying, if you are not happy and you think a job is going to make you happy, you're still not going to be happy. Well, if I get this job, I'm not a happy person, but a job is going to make me happy. I, if I just had this amount of money, then that amount of money is going to make me happy. So really, I mean, do you really think that's going to happen, that here's where you are and you have this magical line out here, this amount of money, this, you know, this much money in savings or your retirement fund, retirement fund this is what your annual income is. And once you just somehow go over that threshold that all of a sudden you're going to become a happy person, no. I know people who have very little, and they're incredibly happy. And I know people that are wealthy, like you and I can't believe, and they're miserable. If you say, well, you know what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do? I would be happy if I had a boyfriend. I don't have a boyfriend. All I need, hey, anybody could give a testimony on that one? Hey, I wasn't happy I had a boyfriend. I was even more unhappy once I had him. You know? <laughs> Or if I had a girlfriend, or if I got married, if I had. If, listen, if you're not a happy person, those things are not going to make you happy. How many of you know I'm telling you the truth? Those things are not going to make us happy. There are needs in your life that no human being can meet or fulfill. And you and I shouldn't project that onto somebody. Just say, hey, you're responsible for making me happy. You're, you're the one that's going to meet all my needs. Because they can't, nor can you not a husband, not a wife, not a friend, not a relative, not a boss. Deep down, what you're thirsty for is a real personal relationship with God. Psalm 63, 1. I love this verse. Look at this verse. Oh God, you are my God and I long for you. My whole being desires you like a dry, worn out and waterless land. Look at this. My, Read this with me. My soul is thirsty for you. What you're really thirsty for Deep down is God. What do we need to know about our own thirst? We need to consider. What are we really thirsty for? And then secondly, and with this I'm done, we need to stop looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. Stop looking in the wrong places. Many of you are imagining that if only this could happen, if I could make this happen, if this, this, this could happen, or if that wouldn't happen, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to be happy. You keep on looking, but happiness and contentment Always seems to be just beyond your reach. Why is that? You keep looking in the wrong places. I've seen this happen again and again to people. I want to say, I want to just sort of hold them by the shoulders and say, you know what's happening, don't you? You see, it's like an oncoming train. And, you know, they're not even realizing what is bearing down on them. You continue to look in all the wrong places. When what you're really thirsty for, what you're really thirsty for, hear me now, is you're thirsty for the one that hung on a cross six hours and said, I am thirsty. Ultimately, that's what you're thirsty for. The only thing that will ever give you lasting happiness and lasting peace and contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment and significance for your life is a relationship with God. About four verses I want you to see, and then I'm going to pray. This is out of John 7. Look at John 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, he raised his voice, and he said, if anyone is what? If anyone is what? Thirsty. Let him come to who? Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within. Look at John 4. Two verses in John 4. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. But no one who drinks the water, what I offer, what I give, will ever be thirsty again. The water I give is like a flowing fountain that gives eternal life. What you're thirsty for is the one who with hands stretched on a cross said in his last moments, I am thirsty. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Everybody, this will only take a moment. If you're here today and you say, you know, Jeff, I know. I know now that I need a relationship with God. I see that Jesus loved me enough to stay on a cross for six hours. I know Jesus went through even having the weight of the whole world put upon him, so much so that even God, his Father, had to turn his head, and Jesus would feel abandoned. I've never really seen some of the things that I'm seeing now. And I know that what I need most is not a new job, not a new relationship, not a new income. What I need most is a relationship with God. I need to be right with Jesus. And if that's you, while nobody's looking around, would you just raise your hand and keep it up for just a moment? It's very dark in here. And I want to just look around and I want to see your hand. Just lift it up, raise it straight up and let me see it. and then you can put it. I see your hand right over there. See your hand back there. See your hand. I see your hand. I'm looking around. Give me just a moment. I'm looking up toward the top. I'm looking. I see your hand way back there. I see your hand. I see your hand, sir, right over there. I see your hand. And would you just pray with me? Just pray this prayer in your heart and your mind. Jesus, I'm thirsty for you. I need you. I need to be in relationship with you. Thank you for going to the cross for me. You died for my sins. You paid my penalty. You took that punishment and that pain because of me. And I'm so thankful. And I know that I need you in my life. I'm now realizing what I'm really thirsty for. It's you. And if I drink what you offer to me, I'll never be thirsty again. Thank you for the satisfaction and the peace and the joy that comes in knowing you. Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, lead the way. Show me what you want me to do. Jesus, I am yours. And with your help, I will grow. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Can we put our hands together and just give Jesus a big hand clap? Thank you, Jesus. Well, friends, thank you for being with us today. As we leave, whatever you do, don't miss these last two statements. We've come to the last two. You will not want to miss. Bring somebody with you. I love you. Have an awesome week.